Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. What is it about succession that, that makes you uh, addicted to it? God, I would love to say it's partly because I have spent many years, almost two decades, watching the Murdochs exist in real life. But really, the writing is just brilliant, and the show is brilliant. And I think the critique they are offering in this particular moment in the culture is searing and delicious. What is the critique? I I think something different than I used to. Now I believe it's really really sending up capitalism in the most dark way. I thought perhaps it was more akin to billions in the original iteration, and it, it, it was uh, a fun glimpse inside a strange, powerful family. Now I think, given what we see happen, especially to the women on the show, it's, uh, it's art. That's Claire Howorth, executive editor at Vanity Fair. And I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to Inside the Hive. Hmm. So it's power corrupts and and ruins lives, destroys families. Destroys families, yes. Capitalism. Capitalism. Destroys families. Capitalism and greed, classic greed. Mm. I think it's more about greed than than maybe capitalism. I don't know. Mm. What do you think? I. Why do you love it? Because I know you're a huge fan too. I don't know if I love it so much as I feel consumed by it. Um, Say more. I feel like I... It helps me understand the real world. It helps me understand the real media world better. It, um, for a reporter who thinks about how these media moguls and how these companies operate or, or, or don't operate, who's not able, you know, we're not able to be in the actual room. We're not able to be in the boardroom. We're not able to know how these people actually behave. And, of course, you know, succession is fiction, but it is a way to think about how the Murdoch family actually operates how other media moguls actually operate. Uh, it's a way to, to explore what the conversations are like, what the conversation might be like. And I find myself as a reporter, I find it almost like a challenge. I watch it almost as a challenge to try to think more intelligently and more uh, in a more sophisticated way and in a more personal way about the people that I try to understand and cover and write about and, and research. Does that make any sense It makes all? full sense. How accurate do you think it is on a one-to-one? Let's talk a little about the characters, and, yeah. and you tell me how accurate you think it is to, to real life. Right. There are obviously big, big differences, and we should explain the differences right off the bat, right? For folks who don't know, you know, yes, Rupert Murdoch has six children. At various times, some of them have helped run the companies, but others have not. And, uh, you know, for example, Prudence Murdoch, 
stays as far away as she can uh, from 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 the companies. James Murdoch nowadays also stays as far away as he can from Fox Corporation and News Corporation. Uh, however, he was once very much involved. Lachlan Murdoch is, you know, the the favorite son right now, the insider player. He's the CEO of Fox Corporation. Uh, so so there's similarities there about having, you know, some of the children running the company. But it's also very different in that some of the kids are are estranged or separate. I mean, and James, voting power. And, and there's voting power, right? So in the event of Rupert Murdoch's death, uh, we know there's a family trust. Each of the adult children has one vote. And, uh, you know, there is this theory out there, and it's been percolating for years and been written about by, by folks like yours truly, that James Murdoch, the more liberal son, right now is strange. He's on the outs. He's off making his own life, trying to prove himself as a worthy businessman. Uh, that James Murdoch could swoop in, try to wrest control of the companies from Lachlan, could try to team up with his sisters and take control. And, you know, we are seeing a version of that on television in these past few weeks with Shiv playing a different game than her brothers, right? That's right. And I think, you know, when the first, when the show first started, it seemed like people were really discussing, well, who is Kendall? Is he James or is he Lachlan? And there was a while when I could go back and forth on that myself. I think... Now I know where I think we stand on which lane Kendall is driving in, and I think it's in Lachlan's, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the power holder. And uh, without saying this directly about the (laughs) real-life analog, Kendall seems very attracted in the end to money above all else and power. So this is an explicit plan to fuck the deal, me rule the world. And you can come, but it won't be a collaboration, okay? You'll be my dog. But the scraps from the table will be millions. Millions. Happy? Woof. Woof. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that the rub is never greater than when he lets Rava drive off to the countryside with the kids and he kind of picks one. I mean, he's lying down in front of a moving car is a gesture, but it's only a gesture. <laughs> uh, and he didn't actually do that gesture. Mm. So he let them go. And I think, you know, the idea, the romantic idea that Kendall was going to be um, a hero figure, I think the writers have effectively dispensed with that. Right. Yes. Do we agree? Right. We're not We're not in season two or season three anymore in right. terms of his, his arc. Now, the, the um, what about Shiv, though? Trying to, uh, you know, find a role for herself, U.S. CEO, keeping, you know, keep trying to keep the deal alive for the end here. Shiv, my heart hurts for her in so many ways. I think she's going to get screwed, mm. as she always does. Um, she has this really um, powerful but ultimately feminine and therefore not winning <laughs> mix of earnestness with also her father's DNA. I think there's a mm. real inside struggle in her in her heart for whether or not she she wants to grab that ring or she wants to be the, the do-gooder. I, I don't think she's going to be a winner. You know what? No, I'm not going to let this happen. There comes a time where you oh, have to stand. There comes a time. Seriously, this is real, okay? Mm-hmm. I have a concern for the state of the republic and, and pluralism. Wow. Yeah. One of my favorite lines in the most recent episode was uh, when when she says, how bad was Dad? Dad wasn't really, um, how, how bad was Dad? And this is coming off, off of her, of, of, of Logan's brother's speech and coming out of the eulogies and, you know, she 
doesn't know the answer yet, you know, or maybe she's really just processing it. And how bad was my dad? How, how, how terrible a villain was he? And, you know, people around her reassuring her that he wasn't, he wasn't all that bad. He's a, he was a good egg, you know, that sort of stuff. Right. I feel like I hear in her eulogy, she's trying to convince herself of how important her dad was and that it was worth all the pain and suffering. We used to play outside his office. And I, I think because we wanted him to hear. And uh, he would come out. And he was so terrifying. <laughs> he was, oh God, he was so terrifying to us. He'd come out and he'd, he'd yell at us to be quiet. You know, this, this silence. <laughs> you know, what he was doing in there was so important. We couldn't conceive of, of, of what it was. You know, presidents and kings and queens and diplomats and prime ministers and world bankers. You know, <laughs> she's convincing himself how important he was. You know, she's making him out to be this, this you know, of course, accurately a larger-than-life figure. But I sometimes wonder when it comes to these media moguls if the people around them Try to build them up bigger than they actually are. Sure. You know, at the end of the day, Mencken you know, may or may not be president, but he's president, not Logan Roy. Right. right? Um, I think about Murdoch, the real Rupert Murdoch during COVID. Right. Knowing how dangerous it was, being first in line for a vaccine, uh, seemingly wanting some of his news outlets to be responsible and yet Fox News was out there with some of its stars saying dangerously, alarmingly irresponsible stuff. And he didn't seem able or willing to, to, to rein it in. He apparently was frustrated at, at some of Donald, Donald Trump's behavior during, during COVID. And yet at the end of the day, Trump was president and Rupert Murdoch was not. Right. You know what I'm getting at? Yes. Yes. I mean, sure. I think the commerce of danger, uh, it, that's part of Rupert's, uh, can I say that? <laughs> Uh, Well, how much leeway do we have to talk just to be to say, do I need to be hedging with a lot of allegedly's or? Well, this is good. Are we getting meta about like the production of the podcast episode? Let's explain to to, to folks who are unaware. You you worked inside the Murdoch media empire for years, right? I guess I buried the... I buried the lead, to use a newspaper term. My true uh, connection. You you were at three different publications. So when you say Rupert, you, you know, you feel like you're on a first-name basis a little bit, huh? Yeah, not quite. Okay. You know, I was never in his boardrooms. Um, <laughs> I was a wee features editor, and I started working for News Corp when, when Rupert, known as just called Murdoch or KRM, as his yeah. intimates call him— um, K stands for Keith. Uh, he launched this iPad publication with Steve Jobs, and it was called The Daily before The Daily Podcast, P.S. Um, this was like 2010, right? 2010. One of the things we did to the delight of Rupert Murdoch was publish very high-resolution photographs. Mm. And I would say the most striking thing I remember about his involvement was he, he, he loved to show large pictures of animals and insects. And his greatest feedback was when we published a picture of some kind of bird of prey attacking a little animal. It was like some real animal kingdom, you know, Mm. National Geographic death. (laughs) And he just wrote, there was only one comment that popped up on the public thing, and it was Rupert Murdoch. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And I think about that often when I watch Succession. Why? 
Uh, Play it out for us. Oh, God, no. You know, it's too obvious. It's the most heavy-handed metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) What I love about that story is if you were the owner, if you were the the mogul, if you were the, 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 the one in charge at the end of the day of this entire kingdom of media properties, it's, well, I'll just put it in my words. I would use my energy very differently. <laughs> I would care about very different things. Well, let's talk about the cast as deputies, because I think that the ultimate executive life is uh, entrusting your large, sprawling corporation to a fleet of people you trust to execute how you like. And you can go on the iPad and comment amazing whenever oh. you want. Because you have who Sid the Toms the Lambskins yeah what is Greg doing we can talk about the that Carls, later the Carls the Franks Jerry's. the Jerry's Jerry's been unfairly sidelined this season mm. um, you have those people running things for you and you trust them to do your bidding and you know they're they're operating ultimately for what you want which is money and power so I'm I guess I'm too much of a micromanager. Maybe. Too much of a perfectionist. Maybe. I'd want to get my hands dirty. Yes, you're such a perfectionist. And when you can never run Vox News. <laughs> Stick around. We will be right back. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hive hey welcome back to vanity fair's inside the hive i'm brian selter here with claire Howorth talking all things succession back to reality here or back to the, the fiction surreality you were going to send about rupert and use the word allegedly and then i cut you off so i have to go back to that moment yeah. what what were you going to say? Were you wondering whether you need to say allegedly or not well <laughs> i think you know shows like the crown and succession that are based on real-world people, there's a delicate dance the shows have to do and certainly critics have to do and the media has to do in covering them in distinguishing between what we think and can say about real people and their motives and ambitions and what we think the show is saying about their motives and ambitions. So mm-hmm. I don't want to be, I don't want to get myself <laughs> or Vanity Fair into trouble. Um, yeah. And of course, Vanity Fair has a, a dedicated succession podcast for folks who have not listened. Uh, Still Watching is where critics Richard Lawson and, and Chris Murray dissect each episode week to week. Uh, and 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 for me, I've learned a lot. It's helped me process the, the show, the, the season as it's, as it's going forward. Um, 
But why don't we, since since they've 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 broken down episode by episode, let's go back to the beginning, right, to season one, and 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 think about this in a bigger picture way. Um, when you heard there was going to be this show that was, you know, in some ways about the Murdoch family, what did you think as a veteran of that of, of those companies, as a veteran of News Corps? You know, um, what was your reaction to it? Well, I'm interested in them well well beyond my employment experience, which yeah. is to say, like, the same way everybody in media is. And the same way everybody <laughs> in media is interested in a certain set of characters, right? Mm. The people who captivate our imaginations and, and that rub of power and personality. You know, it was how, how the writers were going to depict this this family fascinated me. Mm. Could it be boring? Absolutely. <laughs> was it boring? Definitely not. It was it was uh I was hooked from the get-go. Did the did the first season did the did at the get-go, did it feel realistic to you? Did it feel Yeah. I think when you see a lot of people, men mostly, um cussing and you know, making seemingly sloppy and hasty decisions about massive things that have implications for thousands or millions of people. Yeah, that seemed real to me. <laughs> that seemed really real. What about to you? Any personal experience with that? No, I was employed there during the hacking scandal, which was interesting to watch from the inside. You mm. could you could feel the damage. Um I guess it all reminds me of this uh, it, it, a headline that's famous in my mind from The Guardian almost 10 years ago, which says, everyone is totally just winging it all the time. Yes. And that, to me, is a little bit of the succession story as well. You know, the, you, you want to believe these masters of the universe actually know what they're doing and have the best intentions or at least have a thoughtful plan. But no, they're, they're just like the rest of us. If, if anything, they, they might be worse because they've got all this money to blow. Right. Even even if you have the worst of intentions, I don't necessarily think, well, maybe Mencken on the show would be the exception, that, that many of them have fully formed ideologies, you know? Mm-hmm. They're looking out for number one at any given moment, and that's how their decisions are being made. Mm-hmm. And there's a lack of trust that I find, I think about all four seasons of Succession, and, and and this is, I don't know how much I can relate this to the real life Murdoch mm-hmm. family or other media empires. But what strikes me about the, the fictional drama is just no one trusting anyone else. I think that makes a lot of sense. You see a lot of nerves and a lot of, um, you know, the veil of power. If if you if it gets lifted, a lot can go wrong. So there right. everybody's trying to make sure the illusion stays intact. For each other, but mm. yeah, but I don't think anybody really trusts everybody surrounding them at certain high levers of power. Did you see the end of uh, Tom and, and Shiv's uh, marriage coming a mile away? Do we know that it's over? Well, we don't know, no, but... I tend to think... This is my prediction. I think they'll stay together. Because? In miserable perpetuity, because they've established they don't want to live, as they said, as they profess their strange, don't call it love, love to each other. They wouldn't (laughs) live in a trailer park together. They both love Mm. the money and status, and they both afford each other um, things. And I think that Shiv, part of what 
makes her, you know, I think sympathetic and you can identify with her with her is that she does have a human side to her in her, she sees Tom as stable mm-hmm. and a thing that is not quite like her family. Even if he's lusting after all the things that they have and want mm-hmm. themselves, he, he, he offers her something that is real and emotions that are real that she can't find within her, her blood family. Mm-hmm. Could be wrong. Would you say Shiv is your favorite character? Is it weird to say favorite Ooh, no. in the context of Succession? Is there no favorite? I don't think there are any favorites, right? <laughs> also, favorite when it comes to Succession is like, is the acting your favorite? Uh, because they're all doing profoundly good jobs. I think Tom is kind of my favorite. Hmm. I think, I think McFadden's acting is stellar. Mm. And the way he walks the line between... A uh, civilian who's kind of wandered onto this really dark, dangerous path and, <laughs> you know, guy who's now on the other side of it. That's great. The others don't have to play that tension. Mm. Uh, I think he's my favorite. Who's yours? Hmm. And your least favorite. Oh, my least favorite, too. Um But see, even hate has a different meaning when it comes to succession. <laughs> Uh, you know, is it strange to say that my favorite was Logan Roy? No. Um, I wanted even more. I wanted even more of him. Uh, I I totally agree with the writers killing him off, you know, early in season four. It makes a lot of sense. I get it. But I could have done a season five. I could I could have had more. I wasn't I wasn't finished with him. I wanted to spend more time with him. <laughs> I guess I'm like the kids. Stick around. We will be right back. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. So you're sad it's ending. Um, I am. I, I very much am. I am too. I think that, I, I, again, I totally respect it from a production and writing standpoint. Go out, you know, when you're, when you're feeling like you're on top. I love that. But there's, there's more I want to learn. There's more I want to understand through this lens. I feel like the writers still have a lot to say. <laughs> I do too. And that's the impression I came away with. Like they still have a lot to say about this, about the actual real life media swamp that we live in and the way that it actually works. That is why I think the show held on to its compellingness for me is because mm. it became meta commentary and all of a sudden everything did s- seem so glaringly relevant through the eyes of the show <laughs> um, in a scary way. And almost, in a scary you know, way, yes. it was, they were almost writing ahead of how things unfolded. You, you should could, talk about that. Well, you could because, feel them taking lines from the Dominion legal filings and incorporating them into the script. Shiv says, as she's talking with, with Mank and, and Matson, you know, about this CEO idea, my feelings are irrelevant. My feelings are irrelevant. Our audience loves Jared, and so I respect our audience. 
and I love your audience. Well, I could hear Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News Media, saying those words. <sighs> um, our audience loves Trump, and, and we love the audience, right? Respect the audience is that phrase that came up in the Dominion filing several right. times. It just it, that it, that phrase gnaws at me because as they tr- pretended to respect their audience in 2020, they were actually disrespecting their audience by feeding them BS. Um, but but you know those moments where they where the writers feel like they are really they're living in the actual Fox News operation. That's right. Uh, we're so striking. But there's also a critique of the show that you know that that it really overstates the, the control that the media has on our politics. Right? That it, that Fox News is the puppet master, controlling the shots, running running Trump or running a Mankin. Do, do you do you buy into that critique that it's it's overstated? I. Don't know that if it's overstated. I think that the reality is that the media probably makes a lot of sloppy mistakes that have greater influence than they should. Mm. But the influence is still there. Mm. Uh, You know, I don't know if it's so overt as throwing an election (laughs) to somebody. But on the other hand, we, we, we know that to actually kind of be true, right? We know how the big lie got laundered. That's a real thing. It is a real thing, but it wasn't top down. It wasn't Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch saying, we've got to do this. In fact, it was the opposite. They were, it seems, in some of these emails, tapping the brakes, disturbed by Trump's uh, conduct. But, you know, the stars, the, the stars did what they did. Maria Bartiromo and others did what they did. Sure, but Logan, in the same way, never ordered anything top down, and neither did Kendall mm. or Shiv. It was kind of a fluke how it fell apart mm. um, or came together, depending on who you are, for Mencken mm-hmm. in, in that uh, episode eight, I think it was, the one that Jesse Armstrong had said would be so shocking. And the word he should have used was deeply triggering. I, I didn't find it all that shocking. Ah! As, as reliable sources, stalwart <laughs> and CNN uh, <laughs> expat, yes. you know, like what you were, tell us about covering those terrible presidential moments and... Uh, well, you know, the one that, you know, obviously there's there's shades of 2016, there's shades of 2020. There's also shades of 2000. Right. And that's the one where I was like, you know, I was a little young. I was sleeping on the couch watching the, the news that night at home. But 2000, when Fox, you know, swings it to Bush um, in, in a way that's still debated to this day, you know, that that is, you know, there's a call back there, I think, to 2000 that the writers are doing. Now we're going to call Arizona, so we call the election. We call the election? Call it. No. Call it. No, Tom, no, you're making a terrible mistake. Please don't. Hey, guys, it's not my call. It's not my call. Okay. It's your call. It's, it's up our to you. call. If you say so. I call say it. so. I say so. So let's talk more about, you know, Mencken as, as this Trump-like character. Uh, it gets to this, you know, conversation that we went through for four years about Fox and Trump. Who's in charge? Who has control? Who has the power? Who who's who's leading who? I mean, I I did a whole book about it, I, and I, I I still I'm still fascinated by it. Cause I think it's still not over. It's it's still a live story because Trump is now campaigning against Fox, even though he needs the network and needs its fans. There's a moment in episode nine where Mencken says, "I thought you, meaning ATN, were the sound system. Now you want to choose the track." So yeah, I guess um, given. What we have, you know, on our side, you know, how we've been pleased to cooperate mm-hmm. in terms of shared vision. I guess I wanted to touch base. Uh-huh. Wanted to talk, chat, get my thoughts to you. Oh, thought you were the sound system. Now you want to choose the track. 
what do you make of that Mencken as Trump and who's controlling Fox? Who's really in charge of ATN? You know, are, is it the Roys or is it Mencken? Right. I think uh, I'm cribbing from Twitter here. I think there are <laughs> two things are true. No politician is that hot. Certainly not <laughs> Trump. Uh, the other thing that is true is that Mencken, you know, he's what comes after Trump. He hmm. is much scarier in a an acutely fascist way, in a studied fascist way, than I think Trump presented as and has been a vehicle for. The democracy I believe in is where a leader emerged from the people, willed almost into being. Trump is not the only dark force of Trump world. And there are there are elements that are going to follow him, regardless of what happens in 2024, uh, that I think Mencken's probably more of an analog to. Mm. And, you know, he's the real evil coming. I'm wondering if if succession ends with Mencken as the successor, meaning it's it's not the kids. None of the kids win at the end of the day. They're not the successor to their father. They don't have control. It's actually Mencken who who uses, and then again, this is me very much coming off of writing the Fox Trump book, like thinking about Trump as the one who, basically took control of Fox and and became the new Roger Ailes. You know, after Ailes is forced out, there's a power vacuum. Trump fills the vacuum. And I wonder if there's a version of that that succession is going to play in the finale where it's not that Megan literally runs uh, ATN or runs the, the company, but he's he's the one in charge. That would be the ultimate critique of our moment, wouldn't it? And that would tie up the whole show's philosophy in a neat bow. Because that's, that's what I'm, yeah, okay. that's, where I, that's where I think it might be going. But wh- where do you see it going? Because you've thought more about the family dynamics than I have, the personal relationships here. I think about the show as less, or at least I think the show will end with a perhaps unclear uh, successor. Mm-hmm. Whatever that is. I don't know if we will know Mankin to have won or lost by the end of the show. I don't know if we will know one of the children to have won or lost out against their siblings. Uh, I think that we will know somebody is the the victor in the moment, but that the jockeying for power is... Never ending. Never ending. Mm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And... Maybe the silver lining of that is like somebody like Mencken can be thwarted or ousted by by better forces. Mm. Who knows? So in that, that's a significant difference from the real-life Murdoch family, at least up until this point, right? Because I mentioned, you know, some of the kids having nothing to do with the family business, not seeming to want to have anything to do with the family business. Yes, to some extent, there is a, a, a jockeying for power that happened years ago and could happen again in the future, you know, again, with when this trust uh, comes up for a vote. But – at the moment, at least, right? If you think about the Disney deal that Rupert uh, comes up with to sell most of his empire, most of his entertainment empire to Disney, uh, all of the children get cut huge fat checks as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they walk away with about $2 billion each. Uh, and as I mentioned, James goes off, he invests in other ventures, uh, you know, proving himself to be on the outside as a, a strong businessman. Uh, they, they, they take their money and they go, basically. In succession, we're seeing something different, at least, you know, in, 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 I guess if there was a season five, maybe that's what we would see. But in season four, you know, they're pushing for to get a little more money out of Gojo. There's um, there is this constant wrestling that's going on uh, in the real life Murdoch family. There, there has been an element of take the money and walk away. 
uh, that has happened, at least for now. And again, we might just be in an interim period. <laughs> or at least move aside for the minute, sure. And when you say the adult children, you know, his his two daughters with Wendy Deng, they're, I think one is an adult now. Yeah, they're, I think they're, they're in their 20s. They're but, in college. But they do not have voting rights. But they don't have voting rights in the um, trust. Right, which is fascinating. Why? Tell me what you know about that. Because I can't imagine having six children for three different mothers and then excluding two of them from the rights that the other four enjoy. Mm. I, I, it's very strange to me. I uh, only know of the daughters what I, I see on Instagram, and they seem to have awesome lives. College seems really fun, especially when you have access to, uh, to private jets and, uh, you know, whatever whatever resort you want any weekend. Not you know. a bad life, for sure. Uh, maybe maybe you wouldn't mind the lack of voting rights when you have all those other perks. Uh, again, this is something I could have seen in season five. There's so much more to explore. Right, right. I want the jet um, and the votes. You know, your, your point about the multiple uh, wives is, is notable. Um, you know, Rupert, as, as Gabriel Sherman, first broke the news for Vanity Fair, uh, recently bro- broke off his engagement to the woman who was going to be his fifth wife. What did you make of the scene, you know, in episode nine where at the at the funeral where Carrie is brought over and she's one of the girls, right? She's sitting in the row uh, with the with the other women. Oh my God, a murderer's row of widows! It was so <laughs> is that what it is great. a murderer's I, row of widows. It just you know what does the mom say? The the kid's mom. She says this is this is Sally Ann. She was my Carrie. Yes, she was my <laughs> Carrie. And you know. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was brilliant I and and real. Right. Um, and that the women, you know, that Marsha reached over and grabbed Carrie's hand and kind of comforted her. She, she, uh, she provided a flip side in that moment as well as when she's comforting Shiv at the— the pet food mausoleum. Um, <laughs> the, she, she made it known that he—Logan was a very dark force— who these people loved for better and for worse. Mm-hmm. And um, she didn't hold that against his other loves. Right. I, I, that that scene with the, as you said, the murderer's row of widows, that's the kind of scene that, you know, frustrates and challenges me as a reporter. Because that's the kind of stuff, the, the intimacy of those relationships is what actually makes these media moguls tick. You know, it's actually how, the, how this world functions but we rarely get to see it or know it firsthand. Um, and so when Marsha says to the other women, at least he won't be grinding his teeth tonight, and all the women <laughs> get the reference, like, that's it. That's the, that's the story. And, uh, you know, and as, as is often the case, you can tell that story in a, in a much more compelling and evocative way through fiction, right, through drama, through, through you know, you can, you can create it. But, uh, but gosh, it, it makes me dream as a reporter of being able to actually be in the room with these guys, and they almost are all guys. Yeah, you know, those kinds of details, you're right. It serves up this this mm, fictional bookend to what we know to be reality. But also, that's the kind of reporting <laughs> that that um, a lot of people, a lot of outlets won't justify. But it's you want to know what makes these people tick, which is right. exactly what you just said. It's their interpersonal relationships and the grinding of the teeth. Do we think Rupert actually yeah. gets that stress? Will we ever know that detail? And so, yeah, so much of this, so much of the the wars that play out in the media world, as is the case in other professions and industries, are so intensely personal. I always try to remember having having spent some time with one of these these big, you know, CEO types. They 
they think about all the others on a first name basis, right? Iger is Bob. Right. right. Brian Roberts is Brian. You know, it's a blood sport in that way. It's also just very personal. They'll, they'll pick up the phone and call each other, you know, in a way that like it's, it's hard to fathom from, from the outside. And that's what I appreciate about Succession. It's, br- it's brought that reality to life. Uh, when you see the bidding war, for example, over Pierce, you know, totally. going back and forth and, and, you know, what a difference, you know, $200 million make or a billion dollars make. It's, uh, that's really the world. That really is. Not just a bi- what difference a billion dollars makes, but how in bed with each other everybody really is exactly. at that level. The There's Pierce's. a moment where I think it was Shiv who says about her dad, she says, he was about money, winning, and gossip, right? And I'm like, you know, that's kind of what makes the world go round. Huzzah. You know? Yeah. Like, what, what good gossip you have for me lately? That kind of thing. We can have gossip. Um, gossip is free. And, and But, you know, but we're sitting here being like, well, allegedly. <laughs> yes, 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 allegedly. Um, what do you think we've left out here about our succession, succession conversation? I think, I think what we haven't talked about— <laughs> sounds like a band name, but Stewie and the Sydneys. Oh. I think that they showed the Sydneys several times in episode nine because they're going to have some sort of reason for being important to whatever happens in the finale. Mm. And the board uh, is something that is frankly, very boring to think about in real-world terms. But the board is getting a lot of action on succession, and mm-hmm. those, those players and actors are, uh, are fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, the, that it's true, though. The role of those outside bankers, those outside forces, the people making introductions, making those calls, you know, the people hosting, you know, summertime retreats for the moguls, you know, they do have an outsized role. And they're not members of the family, but they exactly they are. Um, I mean, speaking of members of the family, before before we wrap, Greg, what happens with Greg? What the hell have they done to Greg, our beloved Greg, <laughs> who seemed to be such a benign force in uh, seasons one and two, and now mm. he's kind of, oh, he's a shell of a man. Mm. Well, they all are, right? By the end of the show. He's the shelliest. All... <laughs> so what should we learn about the real-life right-wing media? having watched all four seasons, almost all four seasons. I'm scared that you said the thing. Which the, is, the Mankin which thing. Is, yeah. Okay. Which is that right-wing media ultimately props up the victor who is going to destroy us all. Hmm. Is this too dark to end on? <laughs> I think you said it. Sorry, I'm really... Attracted to really horribly dark theories, <laughs> uh, they they ring true at this moment. I don't know. Well, to play devil's advocate, uh, Donald Trump did lose in 2020. He, you know, he, he he may have a path to victory in 2024, but it's not necessarily a clear path. Most Americans are exhausted by this stuff, uh, and not just Trump, but by by political nonsense. I, they don't want to be a part of it. So, is it is it really as dark out there in the real world as you say? I think so. Yeah. You know who we haven't talked about this whole time? Who? Matson. <laughs> and you know what's happening. As this show is having this moment, Elon, who is more or less, I think, who Matson is based on. Do we agree on that? That's a good, a good assessment. Yeah. Uh, a Scandinavian Elon, which sounds terrifying. <laughs> more terrifying. But Elon Musk rolling out Ron DeSantis this exactly. week. Exactly. So right. I don't. You know, it's like you think you're rewatching and rewatching, and then all of a sudden there's 
a crazy plot twist, mm. which is, you know, what I was thinking about the show. Will it end in some kind of wild, unexpected blaze of glory or lack of glory? <laughs> um, and I was like, well, that wouldn't feel real, but then maybe it would, because who on earth would have expected the Tucker Carlson news? Who would have expected... Well, you know, a looking, year ago, would have said Elon Musk to buy Twitter. Or, or that. or you know, <laughs> Especially because he didn't really actually want to buy it, but was kind of forced into it. I mean, there have been a series of crazy events in the past year or so, especially around right-wing media. There is a, a you know, there is a fracturing that's happening across the, the right. Right. Uh, Fox, you know, well, they, they fired Tucker, but they lost Tucker. They lost ratings as a result. There's a There's a sense of so many wild cards being out there right now. And a kind of a new universe of right-wing media, um, which, let's be clear, pretty light on news, pretty heavy on talk, right? It's, it's not as if we're talking about thousands of reporters in newsrooms that are, that are up for grabs. No, this is mostly about ranters and ravers, you right. know, uh, the, the tuckers of the world. But it does feel like a moment where there, you know, I don't want to say anything could happen. A lot could change in this media universe in the months and years to come. And uh, on Succession, you don't really get a sense of that. You know, you, you see ATN as the all-powerful Fox News. Um, but then there's Matson. There's an Elon-type character who's ready to shake it up. Now you're making me just rejigger my thinking a little bit. Uh-oh. What if Matson is the successor here and America is the ultimate loser? <laughs> None of the Americans hang on to the company, uh, which is in decline, democracy thrown into the balance by a guy like Matson or you-know-who in real life. Mm. Uh, is that going to be the way the show leaves us? Is Matson going to be the ultimate power holder? He does seem to not be actually planning to hire Shiv. I'll say that. I guess we'll have to watch. Yep. On that new streaming service called Max, <laughs> it's no longer HBO Max. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a real-life media mogul decision that I will not understand. I don't understand it at um, all. Claire Howard, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you for having me, Great Brian. Great to see you. Likewise. That was Claire Howarth, executive editor here at Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. And we had engineering assistance from Gabe Caroga and Jake Loomis. Mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian Stelter. And right after this, I'm tuning in to Vanity Fair's Still Watching podcast that is dedicated to all things succession all season long. Uh, Critics uh, Richard Lawson and Chris Murphy dissecting each episode. So for even more succession, check out Still Watching. And we will be back here with more Inside the Hive in your podcast feed next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. 
follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon.